Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College and unrepentant Charles Williams fan. And joining me today, we have Serena Higgins. Hey, Serena. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to have you on. I was really impressed with a lot of the things that Serena had written in an introduction to a book of poetry of Charles Williams, and I just kind of randomly reached out to her and asked if she'd ever want to come on the show. And she's just graciously been able to come on and do a guest spot several times for for Charles Williams, for which I'm really grateful. And I figured since this is our last time talking about Descent into Hell, um, I wanted to Mm -hmm. just kind of have an an interview about Charles Williams, about some of her work, and and then also um, uh, talk a little bit about the end of Descent into Hell. Well, thanks. Pleasure is all mine, because what academic doesn't want to talk about one of their favorite subjects for hours on end. Yeah. And I I mean, you wrote about Williams in your dissertation, correct? That's right. He got a chapter of the dissertation. So, I mean, that says something, right? That that after Mm -hmm. writing about him in your dissertation, you still are happy to talk about him. It does. Serena recently received her PhD from Baylor University, where she studied magic and modernist theater, which I'm excited to talk about a little bit more. She's a faculty member at Signum University, and she's currently co-editing a volume called Gardeners of the Galaxies, How Imaginary Worlds Teach Us to Care for This One. I'd love to hear about any of that. Well, what what are you I most excited about, about that there? book with with Brenton for just a quick minute? Yeah, because this may not be true by the time the podcast comes out, but on the, as of the date of recording, the CFP is still open for that volume. And Brenton and I have noticed that, especially science fiction, but a lot of speculative literature has suddenly gotten very urgent in its calls for care for the planet and care for others and for the future and so forth. So we're putting together an edited collection looking at that question. We still have some spaces open as of right now, especially for looking at Afrofuturism and some of the really influential African-American writers who are contributing to that genre. So I'm really looking forward to putting that volume together and maybe we can talk about it a few years in the future when it exists. Very cool. Very cool. Do you know offhand when the CFP is going to close? Well, typically the end of May, but we're a little flexible. So if your listeners hear this and have an idea, you can reach out and see where we are with that. Okay. All right. All right. Sounds good. And I'll include your, you know, your, your information in the, in the show notes. As I said before, we're going to do something a bit different today. While we are finishing up the final chapters of Charles Williams' Descent into Hell, I'd like to also talk more broadly and interview Serena a bit about Williams himself, his influence on the Inklings, his contributions to our understanding of God, Christianity, reality, and poetry. So if you want to hear more about Charles Williams, stay tuned. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. I want to start out 
just talking about some of William's biography, um, some of how he's he was regarded at, during his lifetime, yeah. and, and some of how he uh, has, has come to be regarded since. My impression is, and feel free to correct me, you know, he was once believed to be one of the most important up-and-coming poets in the early 20th century, admired by and friends with the likes of T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, lots of other people who know a lot more about poetry than I do. Since then, William Starr seems to have faded considerably. Any idea why? Yeah, I think there was sort of a downturn and then perhaps an upturn again now. I have a few theories as to why, some mine and some gleaned from others, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, one reason certainly is the very great difficulty of his writing, especially his poetry. His poetry is so difficult to understand that T.S. Eliot had a hard time with it, which is saying something. (laughs) And then another reason is that he draws so heavily on occult materials, which are by by very definition, hidden, secret, hard to access. So if you really want to understand all his layers of illusion and symbolism, you kind of need to go and get initiated in your nearest Order of the Golden Dawn local branch um, <laughs> to understand what's going on, or at least spend a few years, you know, getting a PhD on, on that subject. So that's one reason. There are a few other sort of personal and historical reasons. There was a young man, he influenced Raymond, what was his name, Hunt, I think, who, along with William's wife, Florence, Mikal Williams, they sort of took care of his estate. And my impression is that maybe they fell more on the side of protecting and securing his works, perhaps, rather than disseminating and popularizing his works. So there may have been kind of a generational thing that went on after his death that kept his works from reaching a larger public. But as I say, I'm optimistic that now, thanks to a few scholars and a few publishers and popularizers like yourself, I think maybe he's coming into his own a bit more. And I think maybe it was C.S. Lewis who even predicted that, who said it might take a while for Williams to catch on. But even through all those lean years, there's still been a cult following of the novels, for instance. Yeah. You know, I'd always known about Lewis. I'd always known about Tolkien. And when I took a modern Christian writers class in college, I don't know what it was about reading Williams, but it made me feel like I don't there there was just something that I liked about Lewis and that I liked about Tolkien that was present and present in like somehow greater density with Williams. Like maybe it's even like him being the third inkling. Right. It, it sort of makes me think more and more as as if this is almost like a more of a school of a particular like philosophy of life, right? Represented by the inklings mm-hmm. rather than just a bunch of friends, which of course they were meeting and discussing mm-hmm. their works. There's there's a sort of common thread, at least at least to me, as as much as Williams contrasts with Lewis and especially Tolkien. There's a unity that I can see despite the very great diversity uh, among among the. Uh, and what do you the what do you think it is? What is that quality that's distilled to its essence and present greater density in Williams? I think Williams. It's in a weird way. It's not in the way that Lewis is, uh, because Lewis is very very clear in his writing, and he you know, you can tell he's trying to um, he's trying to make himself understood to people even that are uneducated. Williams, there's there's a kind of explicit, there's more explicit philosophy um, and more kind of original explicit philosophy in a lot of Williams, um, or at least it seemed original to me, even though, as you say, a lot of it seems to be 
gotten from 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 other sources uh, that that are just not well known. One of the things I, I think, especially when you're in college, one of the things you're thinking about a lot is um, how to you know what 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 sorts of friends are my sorts of friends. Um, mm -hmm. How how much to you know how much to reach out to other people, even people who maybe you wouldn't at first feel very naturally inclined to be friends with, right? And one of the things that, that happened for me reading Williams and, and also having that complemented with a lot of the other um, works of other Inklings and other Christian writers was uh, rightly or wrongly, I, I kind of felt like it was more incumbent on me as a Christian to get to know other people who were different from me um, and who maybe I wouldn't naturally, you know, be natural friends with. There's a kind of a bright quality of joy in their works. In Williams and Lewis, I think it comes from their Neoplatonism, that there's something incredibly vivid beyond this world, and they're striving to express that in their works. And then Tolkien has something very similar, but I don't think it necessarily comes from a Neoplatonic strain in him. But they, they, they all have in common, and let's put Barfield into that as well, I think, is there's so much more, there's so much more reality. And what's more real out there, the spiritual world, is not like thin and attenuated and ghostly. As a matter of fact, it's brighter, harder, and realer <laughs> than this world. So I wonder if that yeah. is partly the quality that comes through. And that's why we tend to lump people like Sayers and Chesterton and McDonald in with them, even though they weren't members of the Inklings, because they have a similar quality to them. I think in some ways that says that says it so much better than I just did. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think I was looking for things like that because I was very much I was very much in some ways reacting against sort of the plain evangelicalism um, that I that I sort of grew up with um, a few years before encountering right. Williams I'd gotten involved in the charismatic movement which of course mm -hmm. has its good good points and 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 you know less good points depending on where you are but but Williams very much kind of coincided with the strong mm -hmm. belief that I you know, that I already had, um, that that, um, the invisible world is more solid, right? Uh, the, the spiritual world is, is, is more solid and more real, um, than, um, than even the things you see around you. Um, right. and, and yet uh, somehow it's not a Gnostic or right. Hellenistic rejection of this material world at all. That's right. It's a strong affirmation of the body and materiality and yeah. nature and so forth. Yeah. And yes, his, his association with the Inklings, I think, has been one of Williams's claims to fame, but he was only a member for the last six years of his life. Granted, they were incredibly prolific six years of his life, but a lot of his style and ideas were already formed and had already been published widely before before he joined them. So the influence, if anything, went the other way as well. He had a very strong influence on Lewis especially, but all of the group. Yeah, I could definitely, you know, th there were so many, and I don't know if it's just because I read throughout my life so many of the other Inklings works, and I just naturally think of them when mm -hmm. I read things that, that kind of are, are similar. But, you know, reading through Descent into Hell this time, I, I kept seeing similarities not only between, you know, uh, things in Descent into Hell and things that Lewis wrote, um, which are very much there, and Lewis did not mind being influenced by people. But I also, I also noticed some similarities between 
you know, uh, themes in Williams and themes in Tolkien, for for instance, which of course, like, I'm kind of used to thinking of them as con contrastive, right? As, as oh, right. well, there's Williams and then there's Tolkien and they are, were a little bit like oil and water. But things like, I don't know, in so in these last two chapters, in the opening of Graves, to make a rather complicated plot, you know, as, as short as possible. Lily Samil is encountered again. She's living in a little shed um, by the cemetery. Adela and Hugh are walking around, you know, next to the cemetery and they, and they encounter her and she kind of freaks them out. And, uh, and then a bunch of graves start opening. This causes Adela, in addition to Adela seeing her own image in Wentworth's uh, um, apartment, causes to Adela to go kind of insane and she makes Pauline promise that uh, she will go and get help from Lily Samil because Lily Samil is constantly offering help and Pauline meets meets Lily she sees this great gulf this infinite abyss inside the inside the shed and there are a bunch of like corpse people animated sort of, uh, corpses zombie yeah. inferi <laughs> yeah it's sort of yeah difficult to quite understand but what i what i was able to understand was lily samil the person who's always offering help to other people almost like a corpse herself very much dried up very very empty and of course one thing that comes to my mind when i read that is you know the the end of the the last of the screw tape letters where screw tape says you know all that you might have tempted him with once now that the patient is dead are to him as but half nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot um, wow. but i also think of Gollum, oh. and i also think of sauron um and lily samil is almost like Gollum and sauron rolled into one right because sauron is in tolkien's work the false friend who offers gifts but those gifts actually you know enchain and addict and Gollum is the result of of that, right? Gollum wow. is the one whose strength has. I mean, he could do pretty amazing things, but he's the one who's who's essentially his energy. He's you know Bilbo's little bit of butter scraped over too much toast right. times a thousand, he's been right? Drained. Um, he's been drained yeah. by the ring, right? And he's yeah. yeah, this shriveled, dusty creature. That's really good. I never would have thought of that. So is what they have in common there the idea here that hell is a dwindling away that it it sucks the life and the nourishment out of us and leaves us withered and dry yeah yeah it's the it's the result of it's the result of choice used wrongly i think right to, to choose good. to choose against our source right to choose against god who who gives truly right and who yeah. who's able to give actual life when he offers it but these other figures whether it's whether it's sauron or whether it's lily samil or whether it's you know jadis the white witch who's also you know, in, yeah. in here as well, they cut themselves off from right. that which gives them anything to give. Um, and, and, and then those who listen to them accept some kind of substitute, some kind of poor gift instead, right? Whether it's yeah. enchanted Turkish delight or whether it's a, a ring that sucks the soul out of you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good, uh, Chris. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah. but I mean it's difficult for me to know, and this is this is part of this is part of why uh, you know I, I said earlier that Williams kind of helps me see the sort of larger, broader commonality in the philosophy of like Lewis and mm -hmm. Tolkien and and other Christian writers is that I don't know if these are spiritual principles that are generally just true, and so you're going to have them in any good work of fiction. I mean even 
Keats's Belle Dame Sans Merci right. kind of has this, right? But it could also be that these are sp- spiritual principles that they, that aren't that don't just exist and that you just kind of pick up on, but that the inklings, for whatever reason, even as opposed as they sometimes would have been to, to each other, you know, would have would have at least paid more attention to than other authors. I don't know. Yeah, they're all responding to the same historical context. They're all living through the same two world wars, and they're all responding to the same conditions of modernity with a version of kind of counter-modern, an alternative to modernism. I don't think they were anti-modernist at all. I think they were very actively involved in their times and were keenly aware of the artistic movements of their times, but that they were offering an alternative narrative to the one that some other modernists we think of might. But an interesting triangulation, in addition to the Williams Lewis Tolkien one, would be there's another one you mentioned, the Williams Eliot Auden. We could talk about that, like three great Christian modernist poets. Or you could go a different direction and you could look at Williams and other religious novelists, even those who are writing a little bit later. Like it would be super interesting to do a Williams, Malm, and Walt and Graham Greene comparison to look at these Roman Catholic novelists, because like them, He's setting his novels in the real world instead of in Anarnia or a Middle Earth or Malacandra or something. And so he has the problems of contemporary people in contemporary settings, but he goes about it in a wildly different way than, say, a Graham Greene. But are the concerns all that different? I'm, I'm not convinced that they are. It's been a long time since I've read Graham Greene, but I, I bet I would see a lot more there. Interestingly, we also read Graham Greene in that in that class. Um, nice. It was a it was a modern Christian writers class. So we read. Yeah, one of the things that they have in common, one of their really core spiritual principles, is the idea of hell or Gomorrah as being worshiping of the self, and that any kind of true Christianity whatsoever is a giving up of self. Now, I'm not convinced that in Williams it doesn't come back around to the self, but at least at first, it's a it's a submission, giving up of one's individual will. And we see this in Pauline, that by the end, she's basically she's basically a, a Blakeian now, everything that lives is holy. She's like, well, I accept what is, and what is is gift, and what is comes from the omnipotence, and so I just accept it. Whereas what Adela and Wentworth, ha- Wentworth have in common as citizens of Gomorrah, in William's phrase, is that really they worship themselves. And ultimately, Wentworth even pushes away the succubus that apparently he gave birth to himself because it has become too much other. He's so yeah. self-inwardly turned that he doesn't even want this like external projection of himself. All he wants is himself in the whole universe. And that's what destroys him. That's his descent into hell. So I think yeah. that's something that Green might might share as well. And I'm thinking of that in The Power and the Glory and in The End of the Affair. So one of the things that you hit on there was was the last chapter with Wentworth. And, and this kind of just end this book kind of just ends uh, in, in Beyond Gomorrah with Wentworth finally being damned while still alive basically senile at this point senility as a result of his choice right against community over and over and over again he goes to madame tussauds which is <laughs> which is just kind of awesome and weird what could be a better emblem right it is these yeah. wax substitutes he can't even 
deal with real people or even real historical figures anymore as an historian. You yeah. can only deal with their wax figurines. Yeah, and the and the waxworks really brought home to me. They connected the history aspect of of Wentworth with you know him making simulacra right of of uh, of, right, of that's people. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and then and then he just you know he's he's going to this dinner to honor I think Aston Moffat I think uh, Aston Moffat's there anyway. Yeah, it's the meeting uh, of a small historical society. And, but yeah, it's the first meeting after Aston Moffat's knighthood. And then uh, yeah, he he just kind of lets go of the rope and and, and falls and nothing <sighs> nothing happens for forever and ever. Instead yeah. of with Pauline's spiritual, you know, sanctity, or instead of with Peter Stanhope and poetry, I guess it's true to the title. It yeah. is as advertised on the front of the book. Yeah. So initially, when I read this, I was thinking, oh, this is a really, really dark book, you know, because it's about descending into hell and it traces Wentworth's sort of loss of his humanity and, and, and things like that. And then, you know, after becoming a more creedal Christian, I'm like, oh, descending to hell. That's like, you know, Jesus descended to hell and brought people up. And, and that's in there too. But the note that it ends on, as I'm reminded this time reading through, is hell. Any ideas why he chose to end it that way and that in that like very kind of dark way? Uh, nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. I'm yeah. very surprised by this ending, given Williams, because there are other places in which he seems to be or to want to be a universalist and to yeah. want to think that even the most evil, even people who have continually made choices against God and against community, that even they will be saved in the end. But this novel, okay, it's a novel, it's a fiction, but it seems to belie that doctrine. I think it's a courageous yeah. artistic choice on William's part, but yeah. I don't think I am certain at the moment why why he chose to write this book instead of the Pauline's Journey to Sanctity book. Yeah. Except maybe he had already done that so many times. Right. Right? We have... Many Dimensions, which is Chloe's journey into complete peace and sanctity. And we have The Greater Trumps, about which I'm writing a good deal these days, which is Nancy's journey to becoming this Jedi master. We have War in Heaven, which it's not so much a journey to sanctity because the main character is already there, but it's definitely one of those narratives that wraps up very neatly in the end and ends with a mass and mm -hmm. ends with a lot of sort of spiritual consummation. So yeah. maybe he had to explore the other side of it. Maybe he just felt he was compelled to look at a character who chooses the other path. That's as good of an account of it as, as I've heard. Do you, do you recall, does, does All Hell's Eve end in a kind of dismal way like this, or, or is it, or is it no, a little happier? No, that's yet another. Um, and the other one I didn't mention, The Place of the Lion, those two also end with sort of great spiritual consummations where yeah. there are victorious things that happen, you know, in the cause of, of sanctity. In All Hallows' Eve, the black magician is, is defeated, and the, the girl who was being used as like an emissary to hell she's saved and the married couple who are divided by death are enabled to have communion one last time uh, i mean communication with each other so no this is the only one with such a dismal ending now shadows of ecstasy has a highly ambiguous ending but that's the novel that he wrote first when he was still most deeply involved in his occult practices 
And I think in those days, he was still just so drawn to the charisma of an adept master that he he couldn't bring himself to write a book with an unambiguous condemnation of the great guru figure. Yeah. So yeah. this is the only one with the really dismal ending. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it fits the title, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I I just expected a more sort of creedal, um, you know, version. Nope, um, it's not that descent into hell. <laughs> and it does, you know, I, I mean, when when I have read Universalists, they they've um, at least you know more kind of rigorous nuanced ones um i i don't know that they would certainly mcdonald i don't think would would say that this is an impossible thing to happen it's just the mercy of god is so great that it would not leave wentworth there forever mm. you know what i mean he would um, still have a posthumous chance yeah yeah like this is this is a this is a choice that wentworth is making it is an eternal choice it has the quality of eternity about it right because it's a spiritual choice insofar as wentworth is something the glory of god depends in in some way on all those things being reconciled and and Mm. so even even though wentworth has completely lost himself that doesn't preclude god's mercy doing something even you know more profound than wentworth has done uh you know at least by by the lights of, of someone like like mcdonald um Well, and one supposes that what you just described would also be true for Charles Williams, since he gives a second chance after death to a man who committed suicide. And since time and life and death are irrelevant to the hand of God and Williams, right, he uses Pauline to offer hope and joy to an ancestor from 400 years ago, who presumably is dead, although that's a little unclear since we transcend time. (laughs) Pauline meets him, you know, before his death. But one would imagine that someone could still reach out to Wentworth posthumously as uh, Virgil's readers do in the poem Taliesin and the Death of Virgil, which I yeah. did an episode on. Oh, someone maybe it's still reach out to Wentworth. Maybe it's Adela. Uh, maybe, maybe Adela gets better and, uh, and a sanctified version yeah. of Adela. Adela up, is not uh, in a good place at the end of no, this novel. No, she's not. And the brilliance of, of the double doppelganger mm-hmm. set up. That's, that's pretty profound that when yeah. Adela, as you said, runs away from Lily and from the opening graves, she runs to Wentworth and asks him to help her. And that's when she looks in the window and sees her other self. It's horrifying, mm-hmm. horrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's a highly sensualized version of herself, mm-hmm. but it's also stripped of meaning. So in other words, she encounters what Pauline was afraid of all those years, what Pauline was fleeing from. Yeah. For those two decades or so of her life, Adela sees without preparation. I mean, no wonder she goes mad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly what Pauline was worried would happen, that she'd go mad right. um, when she when she finally encountered herself. But instead, we get, oh, this just glorious passage when Pauline is thinking about her past and we realize now that it's the doppelganger thinking back on the Pauline that we thought was the real one. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I don't know if yep. I'm saying it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's but, at the beginning of, of, of the next to last chapter, I think. Is it the opening of the graves? We get her thinking, wow, all those years that poor scared girl was running from me down the streets. And oh, I don't think yeah, I'll find it right on, now. On 189, there's something like, um, she remembered it now as one remembers a dream, a vivid That's dream it. of separation and search. She had been, it seemed, looking for a long while for someone or perhaps some place that was necessary to her. She'd been looking for someone who was astray. And at the same time, she 
she had been sought. In the dream, she had played hide-and-seek with herself in a maze made up of the roads of Battle Hill, and the roads were filled with many figures who hated, neither her nor any other definite person, but hated. They could not find anything they could spend their hate on, for they slipped and slithered and slid from and through each other, since it was their hate which separated them. Oh, so, yeah, it goes on. That was it. It's the hide-and-seek with herself. Yeah. And then a, a few sentences further, she was searching for some poor shadow of herself that fled into the houses to escape her. That's amazing. So the Pauline that we followed for the first 150 pages of the novel is that poor unreal shadow who's fleeing into the houses to get away from the one thing that will give her joy. Yeah. So it's kind of a hound of heaven sort of image. Yeah, Absolutely. And I wonder, okay, so this is, this is weird and, and most likely heterodox and, and, and whatever. Um, but it is Williams we're talking I, about, yeah, after yeah, all. Yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, if her shadow self had not made the choice to be united with her glorified self, if that isn't in some way the, the answer to the kind of dilemma of, um, of, of universalism, that there, that there exists this real version of Pauline, but the version of her on earth that experiences all of these things at the beginning of the novel um, that can choose to go wrong is almost a shadow of the real thing that exists forever in the mind of God, right? Because we are all facets of the, of the image of God, right? Um, and, yeah. and I wonder if somehow, you know, that, that uniting and that redemption of her, of her shadow self, if the Pauline that we meet at the beginning of the novel had turned away from that, that sort of real glorified Pauline would be any less real and glorified. You know what I mean? But the shadow self would, would dwindle away. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or possibly, you know, possibly become increasingly unreal until all that remained was the substantial glorified Pauline that had always been there. Oh, that makes sense because we see the same thing happening with Wentworth and the succubus because it dwindles away mm -hmm. that night mm -hmm. before he travels to London for the dinner. It becomes old. It ages yeah. overnight and it totters around him and then it lies down by him and apparently just like dissolves, goes yeah. through some kind of process of decomposition yeah. until it yeah. no longer exists anymore. And yet it was his shadow self. It wasn't Adela's shadow self. It was Wentworth's right. shadow self. Yeah. And so what we're left with is the, if I can use the word in this sense, the pure corrupted version. Whereas with Pauline, what we'd have is the pure uncorrupted version. That's a really optimistic reading though, as far as Pauline, because I, I, I wonder if the shadow self had chosen to reject, I don't know. I think somehow it's almost as if the glorious one would cease to exist or never would have, but I don't yeah. know if I have any textual yeah. evidence for that. No, I think you're probably more right there. I, th I think that's, uh, I think that's more. Um, Just because of how yeah. deeply he honors the choices that we make, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and the infinite consequences that they have. Right. Right. Yeah. It would have caused some sort of, uh, what What do they call it in Back to the Future? Temporal paradox or something like that? Um, yes. Or, yes. Or, or something, right? Um, where, where all space and time would unravel or something like that. Um, something wibbly wobbly would happen. Yeah. Can I go back a bit? Because my yes. brain has been working away on your previous question, which was why would Williams write such a gloomy ending? want to be careful here. don't want to commit the personal heresy, but I think maybe there are some things going on in his life that may have led him to go this direction in his writing. 
at this time. And I know you were maybe interested in bringing in some of the things about uh, William's life and practice. And yes. yes, we do want to be careful because we don't want to necessarily read a work, you know, interpret a work psychoanalytically. This is what he was going through. But sometimes it's relevant. And William's more than many other authors uh, write his own experience and himself into his works. So perhaps that would be would be relevant. Where do you want to where do you want to start with that to get at that? That what sounds was going great. On this time, yeah. What what was going on in William's life during his uh, during the writing of this? Yeah. Well, he was more than a decade into this long and complicated emotional situation. In around 1924 or so, he had fallen in love with a co-worker named Phyllis Jones at the Oxford University Press, and they had I can't remember exactly how long. At least a year of like a really intense kind of emotional affair when he was writing her reams and reams and reams of poetry and she was his inspiration for his poetry. It seems that she pretty quickly got overwhelmed by this. Surprise, surprise. Um, He was really intense and he was treating her as his Beatrician muse and putting her on a pedestal. She then turned to a colleague who was the same age as Williams, some 20 years older than she, also married a similar person and had a regular old sexual affair with this colleague, which absolutely devastated Williams. Somewhere around that time, Williams' wife found out about the emotional entanglement and considered divorce. They did not get divorced. But Phyllis then went and got married and divorced herself twice and kept sort of coming back to Williams for consolation, even though she moved to the other side of the planet and back again. And then in 1936, Williams started communicating with C.S. Lewis and the main core of their correspondence at that time was the doctrine or the theology of, of romantic love. What is the mm. nature of of romance, what is its relation to Christian devotion, what is its relation to what they understood to be chivalry in the medieval times. So Williams was on a pretty intense roller coaster about romance, sexuality, and its relation to devotion. Now I'm trying to remember where he would have been in that whole roller coaster ride in 1937. Well, it was only a few years later that he wrote to another correspondent that his, what he, he called it his schism, like his splitting of, of himself and of his consciousness. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, his love for, for Phyllis and her not returning that. Um, he felt that it split the universe in two. But he wrote a few years later to a young correspondent that it was still it was still going on and she still kind of haunted him. So I wonder whether his wrestling with the nature of romantic theology in general and with his situation specifically may have tied into, I wonder if he was worried about turning into a Wentworth, about you know making a shadow figure of the woman he wanted and couldn't have um, and of having that consume him. But I think I'm going a little too far down the the imaginative psychoanalysis path than I feel comfortable doing as a scholar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I could I could see him wanting to write that ending almost as a kind of self chastisement or or, or something right. like that. Although you know, again, reading in right, but um, yeah, but yeah. Whereas that... the Pauline and Stanhope is the idealized version of what he used to have with all of his young female disciples who you know followed him around and admired him. Right, right, and he kept on saying things to him, things to them that are, were quite poetic and mystical to the point of right. being like to me incomprehensible. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, but uh, but but that apparently you know were were, were quite meaningful for many of them. Like you are the mystery of virginity that rides in the zodiac. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
two sides of his schism, right? His Wentworth self and his his Stanhope self. Yeah, both both potential doppelgangers if we want to get really uh, really autobiographical in our reading. But I'm glad you I'm glad you are zooming out a little bit to talk about biography. Um, I, I'd, I would like to end on talking more about Williams kind of broadly and generally. Yeah, he was he was definitely I mean, you have a blog called I think the the oddest inkling. And so you recognize that he is he's very different from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in many, many ways. You know, while he was a Christian, as you know, have, have mentioned, as we've mentioned on the show, he's intensely interested in the occult throughout his life, belonged to the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, which I believe was something like a Christian music version of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Is that? Um, yes, that's right. That's a good that way correct? to put it. <laughs> I would love to understand, uh, first of all, what these two orders were, and, and second, okay. how, how the Rosy Cross differed from the Golden Dawn. Sure. Well, the Order of the Golden Dawn was founded in 1888 by three Freemasons who were also Christians. And so at first they were gathering together people who, you know, fit those characteristics. But from the beginning, the Order of the Golden Dawn also admitted women, which is an important factor because the Masonic tradition has never admitted women, although there are also there are co-masonry orders for women. So the Order of the Golden Dawn was highly syncretistic and it was founded based on one little scrap of paper written in code, which the founders believed was this ancient document transmitting secret knowledge. And they traced this secret knowledge back to possibly ancient Egypt and a figure called Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Great, who may have been either a human sage or an embodiment of the god Thoth, or they possibly had like Far Eastern, quote unquote, roots. And then they also brought in this legend about a man named Christian Rosenkreutz, who supposedly lived in Germany in the Renaissance and was this great guru who traveled the world collecting all this wisdom and building it into a sort of coherent body of knowledge. And then when he died, he was he was buried and his tomb was opened 120 years later and his body was uncorrupted, showing sort of the pureness of his teaching. So anyway, the Order of the Golden Dawn brought together several different religious, philosophical, and social practices. They used the grade structure from the Masons, but they mapped onto it the Jewish mystical tradition of the Kabbalah, or the Sephirotic tree, the tree of life that has these different sort of levels, the ideas that the soul climbs the tree of life as it attains these different virtues, and eventually reaches a state of unity with God or with the primal light. And they also mapped onto it the zodiac, other elements of astrology and many, many other systems, Enochian magic, which goes back to the Elizabethan times. So the Order of the Golden Dawn continued to grow. And in 1893, they added a second inner order, the uh, the RR and AC, the rose, the ruby rose and the silver cross inner order. And in that inner order, they practiced real magic, ceremonial magic of many kinds, mostly divinatory. And the purpose of this whole group and of many other offshoots and related groups was for the initiate to climb these different spiritual ladders, these virtues, attain these different levels of consciousness, and ultimately to reunite with their divine self. They believe that there's this inner divinity that we've lost touch with, and that through these very serious and elaborate uh, study and meditation practices and divination, you could reunite with that divine self. 
So the poet William Butler Yeats was a member, the notorious Aleister Crowley was a member of this order. And then a very important member whom most of your listeners will probably not have heard of was Arthur Edward Waite. And in the early 1900s, he initiated a split. And I'm going to oversimplify matters here because there were many, many splits and, you know, everybody wanted to be a leader of their own breakaway order. But to super oversimplify it, you have Aleister Crowley going one way with black magic, you have William Butler Yeats going another way with white magic, and you have A.E. Waite going a third way with Christian occult mysticism. So then in 1914, A.E. Waite founded the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. And what he did is he took all the rituals from the Order of the Golden Dawn and he stripped out of them their Egyptian imagery and really, really built up the Christian imagery and the Christian symbolism in the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. Now, he still kept the grade structure. He still kept most of the rest of the language in it and some of the divinatory and invocational practices. And it still has the same goal of uniting with the divine, but he calls that divine Christ or the Christ spirit or the cosmic Christ. And it was that order, the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, <laughs> that Charles Williams joined in 1917. And Williams remained an active member for a decade, memorized all the rituals, and served as master of the temple for three different six-month periods. So Williams absolutely mastered this whole system. At the same time, for 20 years, Williams was a more casual, informal member of what we think was not an officially an official spinoff of the Order of the Golden Dawn. But every other Sunday night for 20 years, <laughs> Williams met with a group at the parsonage of an Anglican vicar, A.H.E. Lee, who used to be a high-ranking leader of the Golden Dawn itself and still had some of their secret teaching documents that were called flying rolls. So there, Williams seems to have also learned some of the less explicitly Christian rituals of the Golden Dawn and also some independent practices that he and another man, Nicholson and Lee, seem to have developed that were quasi-tantric practices of uh, redirecting sexual energies towards creativity and towards devotion. So there is the whirlwind tour of turn-of-the-century occultism and Williams's involvement in it. That is really fascinating. Thank you for, thank you for yeah. that. Um, Thanks for giving me a chance to share uh, that. What do you think was the attraction for Williams to, to like the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross and, and these other kind of magical orders? And does it, does it coincide in any way with attractions to like other organizations such as the church or, or drama or, or, yes. or anything else? He would have said ceremony. I would say power. He was, Williams was always in love with ritual, with the high ceremonial, with putting on the robes of state and performing some kind of specific choreography and speaking pre-written lines and having, having one's spirit or consciousness elevated to be greater than your single self by art and ceremony. But I'm afraid that it really was a desire for power over others. And Williams did exercise this power in some very questionable ways, especially over these many young female disciples that he gathered uh, later on in his life. But these orders were very appealing to people like him. Williams, as your listeners probably know, didn't finish college. He had about a year of what we would call now dual enrollment, like his last year of secondary school and college together, and then only a few months, and then his family couldn't afford it. Yeah. And he was 
he was a bit financially struggling all of his life. So he felt marginalized. Now, this seems a little bit weird for, you know, like a British white guy from a sort of lower middle class family, but he felt marginalized and alienated because he didn't have that straight route through like the Eton Oxbridge system. And he had to work his way up at his job from a lowly proofreader up to a senior editor without any official qualifications. And these orders appealed strongly to those sorts of people because they offered an alternative education. I mean, the amount of material that people had to study and memorize and the tests they had to take to climb up these orders was the equivalent of like an undergraduate and then a master's and maybe even a doctoral degree because they had to learn languages and they had to take all these exams like their owls that had both written and practical applications. (laughs) So that was highly appealing. And then of course they were highly appealing to women who didn't have any positions of power or authority in traditional uh, religious institutions. And then I think bringing those two things together, William's specific interest in what is the place of sex and attraction and romance in a theological system, I think being in an order that admitted women was appealing to him from that point of view as well. So when you say that, you know, he didn't have really a route into Oxford or Cambridge and that that could be a reason why these organizations would have appealed to him, I, I just think immediately of the episode of The Simpsons with uh, the Stonecutters Guild where, you know, there are all these like high ranking people who are just like regular schlubs in real life. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Burns is like the servant in the, uh, right. in the Stonecutters Guild. kind of inverted world right yes. um in in a lot of these uh in a lot of these organizations i, I don't imagine yeah, yeah I, I don't know about the masons um but yeah, yeah um, you couldn't be a professor you couldn't be a priest but you could be an adept you could be an exceptus an adeptus exemptus you know right. a high exalted honored yeah. father in in one of these orders yeah but the other thing I think of is, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, he, he said it was ceremony, uh, but, but you suspect it was power. Um, it's interesting that like, it would be, it would be interesting to look more at the relationship between those two things. Right. And uh, because, because ceremony really is at least on its face, a relinquishment of your own power to act however you you know, wish, right? Um, that that you are accepting the authority of whatever ceremony you happen to be participating in, right? Whether it's like a wedding ceremony or whether it's ceremony in church or something like that, you're acknowledging like there's this greater way of doing things that has authority over my particular actions right at this moment. Same with a play, right? Of course, 
when you rise in the ranks and you get to yes. be one of the people who sort of sets the ceremony or determines the ceremony, I imagine there, you know, exactly. that's a, there, there is some power there. Yeah. If you're the celebrant or officiant in the religious context, or if you are the author in the theatrical context, then you are the one telling the other people <laughs> to subordinate themselves to the ceremony. And you are the one who is shaping this ceremony and shaping this experience. Yeah, it's very heady. And I, I actually wrote in my dissertation a little bit, and I hope to expand this for the book, about the problem when you have an author who, who writes a play and smuggles into it real magical rituals from a hidden order and doesn't tell the actors or the audience members I write about that as being a kind of spiritual abuse hmm. because these people have not given what we would now call informed consent right. to this religious experience. They don't know that they are speaking or listening to quote unquote real magic spells, spells which the author thought had actual efficacy to call up or out or down spirits. Hmm. So, you know, the actor or the audience could be put into a situation where they were performing a ritual they hadn't agreed to perform. And it's it's a weird irony of theatrical history that Aleister Crowley, who is not known for being an ethical person, in this specific case, he let it all hang out. He was like, come to my play, which is a religious ceremony, and we are going to invoke the spirits of these certain deities and you will be possessed by these spirits. And by the way, I will give you certain libations to drink will help alter your consciousness um, and it'll be awesome. <laughs> so at least he was so for him, it's a feature. honest about what he was um, doing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I mean, Williams and Yates were, were sneaking this stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's to, to what extent, well, I don't know if we have time to pursue that question, but uh, but is this in what way do you do you view that as different from what say like Shakespeare does when she when he has the witches at the beginning of Macbeth? Hmm. To the best of my knowledge, Shakespeare and his collaborators are not bringing in what they believed were real okay. magic spells. I'm not a Shakespeare expert, so I'm not 100% sure about that. But the larger answer to your question is, I have no idea where the line is, and I don't uh -huh. know how different it is. Yeah. Because if it, when it's a Christian playwright who's like smuggling in the gospel to try to reach an unreached audience, I as a Christian feel like that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And isn't that hypocrisy depending, on my Depending part on how ham-fisted they are about it. But I want the subtlety because I like art, which of course raises really that, that very question, which, which you know, people are going to be, I've been duped into seeing a Christian play. I don't like Christianity, right? And, uh, you know, and a lot of people have that complaint about the Narnia Chronicles and, and things yes, like that. Yes, there are people who didn't, didn't notice the Christian parallels as kids and loved it, and then as adults felt that they had been cheated. Lots of amazing questions. I want to end just because I know super fans of Williams are, are going to be mad at me <laughs> about focusing on just sort of, you know, more negative things uh, about Williams, but it's, it's fair to do because th oh, it's we there. So the right? really ugly stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Williams. <laughs> but, but I would like to, unlike Williams and descent into hell end on uh, a somewhat positive note, which yes, is um, how, how has, how has Williams 
positively impacted you? Very, very deeply. And the specific way that he has impacted me positively is through these depictions of the submitted saints, of the Jedi masters <laughs> that he depicts in his books, and most especially Sybil Coningsby and the Greater Trumps. They just have this deep, deep peace and tranquility. And they've come to that through great suffering, but they inspire me. That's been the most positive thing for me from Williams. There are many others. I mean, his work is beautiful. He's a very skilled writer. And there is something to be said for the power of ceremony and ritual and of the ways that art lifts us above our current consciousness and our current situation and shows us beauties and glories beyond ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'd say as well, like related to what we were talking about at the very beginning, the thing that Lewis and Tolkien and Williams all seem to have in common is the ability to make holiness, not just kind of an empty platitude, not just this sort of like water thin, you know, piety, but something very substantial and interesting in its own right. And very often more interesting than than evil which is which is which is a feat because usually it's much easier much cheaper to go for making evil interesting um inferno is the book i always choose of dante's to teach every year and there's a mm -hmm. reason for that because it's to most people more interesting than you know even purgatory and certainly than than paradiso but williams and lewis and tolkien channeled mm. so many of the things that you that you get in in parody so and made it more substantial i think that right. dante does yeah you're right they're augustinian uh, in that way that yeah. evil is just derivative it's just a twisting or a bending it's just bent goodness and you're right they they really give goodness flesh and face and expression and put it into their worlds and set it moving and it's really vivid and vital Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to recommend to listeners before you before you exit? Any any other projects you're working on that you'd like them to, to check out? I have just begun a podcast of my own. And as a matter of fact, we have to wrap up today because I'm recording an episode of it. It has nothing to do with the inklings or even literature, except tangentially in the ways those have framed my own mind. But it's a topic that Williams would be deeply passionate about if he happened to be an American evangelical in the year 2022. Because what Williams hated more than anything else was schism, division. In his Arthurian poetry, he rewrote history so that he could erase the 1053 That's East right. split of the yeah. church, right? <laughs> uh, so this podcast is entitled 1619 and 1776. And in it, we are striving to find common ground between American Christians on the quote unquote left and the right. So I'm interviewing different pastors and ministers and so forth to hear what they think about contemporary issues and how we might heal the terrible rhetorical and real partisan divisions among Christians today. That is awesome. Um, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I will link to it if there is a link at, the, at this point in the, in the show notes. And I encourage all, all listeners to check it out. Serena Higgins, thank you so much. Thank you for your generosity and your time and your insight. Thank um, you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you again sometime. 
All right. Take care. Uh, Bye-bye. Under the mercy. Under the mercy. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the Geeson fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.